Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. There's a strange plant called nardu that grows in the deserts of central Australia. Uh, the plant itself kind of looks like a fern, and its natives at times, the natives of Australia there, they will eat this plant if they can't find food or another source of food. Now, one of the peculiar properties of this plant and its seeds is that it produces this pleasant feeling of comfort when it is eaten. But it offers no nourishment at all. A party of explorers crossing this central desert region of Australia once ran out of food. So their leader, Captain King was his name, he recommended to this crew of explorers that they eat this nardu because he had seen the natives eat this stuff. So day after day they were feeding on this. At first... They felt satisfied. They were thankful to have something to eat. But soon, their strength began to fail. Finally, it killed them. They wasted away to nothing. They laid down and died in the desert of starvation while eating this plant. One solitary survivor survived. He was discovered eventually under a tree. And he told their story. Here's what I want you to think of, and I want you to make this connection. This illustration is perfect for our account today in Acts. This is precisely the issue with idolatry. People persist or perceive that their spiritual needs, their longings are actually being addressed by their idolatry when in reality they may feel good, but they are actually dead spiritually. They are dead. They are hopelessly dead and they need to be delivered. And yet they don't know it because their idolatry to some degree at some level brings satisfaction. God alone offers hope and genuine comfort through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Our world longs for satisfaction. And for comfort. Folks, if you don't believe that, go look at social media for two minutes. Our world longs for satisfaction and is looking for it in all the wrong places. For us as his people, we understand real satisfaction and comfort are found in Jesus alone. Now, what I want you to observe with me as we walk through this, and again, it is a little bit of an extended section that we're going to walk through, but the story to a great extent is truly just, it's kind of a narrative account. There's not a lot of details for us to wade through, not a lot for us to kind of bore down on, all right? But a couple of things are going to come out, and I I want you to be gripped by these two realities. First, our God is more powerful than any opposition to the gospel. And you and I can take comfort or comfort one another because of him. So there is a connection. 
God is bigger and more powerful than idolatry. He's bigger and more powerful than opposition. And because of that, we can find our ultimate comfort and satisfaction in him. Now, remember, as Luke writes this second book, uh, kind of the follow up to the gospel of Acts. This is volume two in every sense of the word. It is the longest, the second longest book in our New Testament. And it is the ongoing account of the divine action of Jesus. But now we see it being lived out in the lives of his followers. This is the continuing story of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The theme throughout is that the followers will receive the Holy Spirit and they will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The whole layout of the book, chapters 1 to 7, it begins at Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 to 12, it goes to uh, Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28 to the ends of the earth. So again, as we walk through this, first I want us to note our God is more powerful than any opposition we can face. And second, we can be comforted and should comfort one another because of God. So we begin with an extended section at the end of chapter 19. A religious and political riot is where we find ourselves here in Paul. Now initially... Luke is going to inform us about Paul's travel plans. And so far, Paul's first missionary journey and his second missionary journey have received much longer attention than his third missionary journey is going to receive. Again, we started the third missionary journey last week, and it starts with Apollos, right? But it's primarily in Ephesus. We'll see his movement again, but that's really all Luke's doing. Almost from the beginning here, Luke is telling us on this particular journey, Paul, and he says so here, Paul sets his mind, he sets his focus on making it back to Jerusalem by a certain time. And he says that at the outset. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. So this entire journey Luke is tracking for us, Paul's thinking about getting to Jerusalem. Paul's thinking about getting to Jerusalem. And what we will note when we get to chapter 1 is there's a reason. In a sense, Paul takes a stand in Jerusalem. And in chapter 21, Paul's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. And that's really the rest of Acts. The rest of Acts is Paul's journey and the events leading to eventually his imprisonment in Rome, and according to tradition in Christianity, his death, his martyrdom in Rome. That, that's really where we're going for the rest of Acts. The missionary journeys end in chapter 21. The rest of the book is Paul headed to Rome. So initially he states, Paul resolves to make his way back. Now there's two ways for us to take this. And there isn't a way to differentiate between these in the New Testament. The word in the original for spirit can be translated your spirit the same as it can be translated the Holy Spirit. So is this Paul's spirit? This is in him or this is the Holy Spirit that is directing him. And here's what I want you to know. It could be it could be within Paul's own spirit. And it's interesting. Either God is working through Paul's own desires in line with the power of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit is leading him specifically 
and intentionally. Now, here's what I want you to know and think this through for a moment. If the one is true or the other is true, how does it change the application? It doesn't. Here's the truth. The spirit of God is at work in the life and heart of Paul and is directing him and leading him. And folks, many times as we read a book like Acts, we think in our minds, Paul had this unique thing that we don't possess. Paul had this unique opportunity that we don't enjoy. Paul had this special thing that's not ours. That's not true. Literally, I think that this text is instructing us that God is at work by his spirit, even in the longings, the desires of Paul. And folks, I think that God will work in your heart the same way. God is at work guiding and directing as we are yielded to the scriptures. Now, many times what people will do with that is they'll say, I want to do X and therefore God's in it, right? No, that's not necessarily the case. Remember the criteria for understanding whether or not we're in line with the spirit of God. What is it? We measure it against scripture, against the truth of God's word, right? So as we evaluate our decisions and our longings, etc., we evaluate them in light of the truth of God's word. God's not going to direct you to do X if it doesn't line up with this, right? That's how God works. And we have to see that. There is nothing that conflicts with the plan or will of God for Paul to get back to Jerusalem for this feast. Nothing. And therefore, certainly it aligns, God's using that to accomplish his purpose. And I think we'll see that throughout the end of the book. Now, one of the other pieces that's fascinating in Acts is why does Luke select the items that he selects? If you remember from last week, Paul's ministry in Ephesus is probably as much as three years. Somewhere between two and a half and three years. Now stop for a moment and think about this. Why, if Paul is in Ephesus for two and a half to three years, why does Luke choose this account? Why does Luke choose a riot from a guy named Demetrius, who is a silversmith? Why does he choose that? as the account that we need to know about, right? Well, one of the things I think is important for us to understand is that Luke is at times presenting opposition to the gospel within Acts. So what he's doing is he's saying, in this scenario, there's opposition to the gospel. There's opposition to the message of God. But oftentimes, most often, that opposition is for reasons other than the content, right? So it's not the message that causes an offense. What's the real issue for Demetrius as he brings this up? We could probably say any one of three things, and we've seen this before, but one is jealousy. Paul is maybe gaining an audience that Demetrius wishes he had. Second, it's monetary. Demetrius says, we're going to lose money, right? This guy destroys the idol industry and we're all in trouble because that's what we do. And number three, we have to protect the patron goddess of Ephesus, right? The temple is here. This is a big deal. 
Now, what is interesting is, who is Demetrius? I think when we look at a story like this, we think, you know, this is just a guy. But as I was reading, I thought it was funny. One, one person, one commentator actually presents him as the president of the silversmiths union. Right? I mean, think about this. You, you think this stuff just pops up today. No, this is old, right? So Demetrius, he is somehow in charge enough that he can call this whole group of craftsmen together and kind of have a discussion such that once they're done, they're exercised. They're mad. They're, they're fearful. They, they don't know what's going to happen. And at the end of this, they begin to chant, great is Artemis, right? Great is this goddess Artemis. Now, a couple other things are important for us to understand within this account. First of all, Ephesus is a significant city. If you stay for our q and I'll give you a very brief tour of Ephesus. Some ancient, some modern, all right? But I'll show you kind of Ephesus and what's going on. This is a significant city. Uh, it's a great city within Rome. So there's a lot happening here with Ephesus. But one of the keys with Ephesus is this goddess Artemis. There was great, great pride in this city over Artemis. And there really is the sense that all of Asia, as, as Demetrius is going to say, all of Asia and the world worship Artemis. This was a big deal to them. In, in, in fact, at one point, there were residents of Sardis who were, 45 of them were accused of, uh, of assaulting a group of followers of the Ephesian goddess Artemis. And they received the death penalty, all 45 of them, for going after this god and those who serve this god. So Artemis is a really big deal in Ephesus. But Artemis is an idol. The silversmiths make idols. Listen carefully. At the outset, we have a battle forming. Ba battle lines are being drawn. Idolatry versus the one true and living God. Now, if you've read your Bible at all, you know how this is going to go, right? But here's the piece that fascinates me, is the manner in which God can make it go. It is unique in every scenario. Think about the way that God makes it go with the idolatry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about the way God makes it go on the Mount Carmel with Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. You see, it looks different. In every scenario, it looks different. Think about how God makes it go in Jeremiah for the people of Israel. There, God allows them to go into captivity. Think about how God delivers the people and Hezekiah. Whenever God is set up against idolatry or idols, guess what happens? He will win. However, he doesn't win the same every time. It doesn't look the same every time. And what I want you to observe is how God wins in this scenario. How God demonstrates quietly his power and his ability and his presence with his people throughout this account. It is fascinating. So this group of craftsmen collectively, they set the city on edge they're yelling. Other people start yelling. They rush toward the theater, which I'll show you in a little bit. 
As they're rushing toward the theater, they grab two of Paul's uh, companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. They are from Macedonia. They grab them as they go. They take them along, likely throw them on the stage or have them sit, sitting nearby. And this crowd, basically, it turns into a mob, right? Just an out-of-control mob. Uh, in a sense, at this period of time, Riots and unrest in Asia were common, and oftentimes a city like this would cry out, great is, in this case, Artemis, in other cases it was their God, in a, in a standardized way kind of, of demonstrating their loyalty to their local city deity. So this happened at other times. History records that for us. Paul never wanted to be afraid for his life, says, hey, let me go in there. Let me go in there and talk to these people. And, and the scripture clearly tells us people are begging him, Paul, no, 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 you can't go in. There's some wealthy people or some well-to-do people, some significant people of the city. They actually step in and say, Paul, no, you can't go in. This isn't a conversing time, right? They don't want to talk. They want to kill somebody. You can't go in. So they prevent him from going in. Meanwhile, inside this, they talk somebody, some guy, into standing up and talking. His name's Alexander. He happens to be a Jew. And in response to that, the Ephesian Gentiles, Greeks, just begin to chant for two hours. They chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now imagine that, if you can, a stadium. Most of you can imagine a stadium. You've seen one, you've been in one. Imagine a stadium that is collectively chanting together, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It probably would feel pretty intense, don't you think? For two hours? I don't know about you, but that feels like it'd be tiring, you know? It feels like it'd wear you out. Well... The town clerk at this point, verse 35, he steps up and quiets the crowd after two hours of this. And one of the little ironies that Luke adds is, in verse 32, most of these people, they, need, don't, they don't even know why they've come together. So the mob has formed, but they don't even know what they're yelling about. Right? We, we don't know what this is about, but hey, let's join in and yell. Great as Artemis, right? It speaks to what we talked about last week. Pure pressure. It's real, right? No matter how old you are, it's real. So the town clerk, he steps up and he quiets the crowd and he says to them, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? He says, listen, you're screaming and hollering something that we all know to be true. Right? Calm down. What, what, what is the deal? Right? Be quiet. What you're saying, we all already know. So seeing then that these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet. And you must not act rashly. Now, I find this fascinating in some respects. You have the lone town clerk. Now, who is the town clerk? And I think it's important for us to understand this individual would have kept records for the city, would have served in some respects as kind of a, a registrar. They would have known, this individual would have known the laws well enough to know what was a legal assembly of the people and what was an 
illegal assembly. And that's what he's going to address in a moment. Likely, he's the chief executive officer of the city. He answers to Rome, but he is not appointed by Rome. So in some ways, this could be a pretty uh, political office, right? If he's somehow put into this office by the people of Ephesus and he has to answer to Rome, he's kind of got to keep them happy and keep the people happy. Man, imagine that office. And yet this guy acts like a leader is supposed to act. He calms the chaos. He doesn't create the chaos, which is fascinating. So he reminds them that nobody's in doubt of the patron goddess of Ephesus, tells them not to be rash, tells them that there needs to be a legitimate reason for their complaint. And if there is, there's a legitimate way to handle it in a court of law, not screaming and yelling in the theater of Ephesus. Right? And so he says all of this, and then literally, he dismisses the crowd. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever stood before an angry mob, but can you imagine saying to them, stop acting like an angry mob. Now, all of you go home. In essence, that's what this guy does. And listen to me. What's even more amazing is they listen. Now, I don't know if there was wisdom on the part of this town clerk to let him yell for two hours because maybe they were tired, right? Maybe they were all like, let's, let's go home and take a nap. You know what I mean? Let's, let's go get a sandwich. I don't know. But I, I, who knows? But here's, here's the beauty of this. Behind all of this, God is at work. You remember this? You remember back in chapter 5, the disciples are arrested, or chapter 4, the disciples are arrested. They're brought in before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are livid. They are going to kill them. They are going to make an example of them. They are going to die. Every one of them, right? Well, in that point, it's Peter and John. But they're going to die. And Gamaliel says, guys, let's take a step back. Let's remember the cults that have existed before and how they get put down. He gives two examples. And then he says this. If God's in it, you can't stop it. And if he's not, it'll die on its own. Let him go. You see again how God's at work in the background. It takes one guy, calms the room, and everybody kind of moves forth. That's exactly what happens with the city clerk. And what I would submit to you is this. I do not believe the city clerk is a believer. Maybe he became one. But I don't believe at this point that he is a believer. What I do believe is that he demonstrates the manner in which a leader is to conduct themselves. A leader doesn't throw a rock into the pack and say, hey, it wasn't my fault. Right? A leader's calming the scenario, not amping it up. Not creating chaos. And there is an example for us there in leadership. Lousy leaders create chaos oftentimes to get their way. Beware of chaotic leaders. Beware. Beware of chaotic leaders. The second thing, though, is, and I want this to be the thing that jumps out at us most, God is greater than idols. He's better than idols. He's more powerful than idols. And folks, you can see it clearly in the account. You got Demetrius and his band. They are enraged. They are jealous, maybe. 
They know they're going to lose money. They aren't letting go of their patron goddess, right, Artemis? And yet God silences them all and sends them home with a word from the city clerk. That's God. And folks, God is able and capable to do the exact same with the chaos, the hardship, the trauma that's in your life. The truth is, you've got to yield to him. You've got to let him. You've got to let him work in your life. You've got to let him guide your life. You've got to let him control the way that you're going to respond. For so many of us, our response often is as chaotic as the world that surrounds us. That's not what ought to characterize God's people. What ought to characterize us is a rest in God's ability to accomplish his purpose. Do you trust him like that? Are you resting in him like that today? God is better and God can be trusted. He's gracious. He's guiding. He's providing. He's protecting. He's able. Do you believe that? Does your life testify to that belief? For so many of us, our lives don't testify to a genuine trust. We're trying to control. We're trying to grab. We're trying to manipulate. We're trying to make sure it goes the way we think it should go. That's not how this works. Our God is in control and we must trust him. Will you? Will you? So the crowd is now quiet, beginning of chapter 1, and uh, Paul is going to return now to Macedonia. The first thing he does upon this thing ceasing, he calls the disciples, and he encourages them. This is a fascinating word. It is the same word, the verbal form of the word, the noun form for paraclete or uh, comforter, the description of Jesus uh, about the Holy Spirit in John 14, right? The comforter is going to come. This is what Paul is doing. He's encouraging, exhorting, comforting these believers as he says goodbye and prepares to leave them. This word encourage is significant. Again, it means to urge. It means to exhort. It means to comfort. It's used many times throughout our New Testament. But it's going to be very significant in the verses to come. After Paul leaves, he goes to Macedonia, and really we have a very small window, a very small look at his time in Macedonia. All it says is he went there, and what does he do there? He does the same thing. He gives encouragement to them. And then they came to Greece, and they stayed in Greece for three months. And during that time, there's a plot that develops. We're going to get Paul. We're going to kill Paul by the Jews. And so Paul kind of goes a different route than all of his seven companions. They go another way. Paul, I think, and Luke go another way. They meet back up in Troas. What I want you to note in this section is simply this. The encouragement that Paul offers both the disciples of Ephesus and the believers that are throughout Macedonia and Greece. He offers them encouragement in the word that is used uh, uh, for the Holy Spirit. He offers them this comfort that comes from God. 
He offers this to both. And what I want you to note is this. This is a significant piece of what the church is called to do for, with one another. To encourage, to comfort, to strengthen, right? To exhort. This is what God calls us to do and be. Is that what characterizes your relationships within the context of the body? Encouraging, comforting. Is that what's happening for you? Does that describe your interactions in your home? Does that describe your interactions in the workplace? As believers, we should be marked by encouraging one another like Paul was. And I think one of the things that's fascinating about Paul is this is probably his lasting legacy. I mean, think think this through for a moment. Paul never built a building anywhere. Paul didn't have any massive structures that had his name on them. Now, there's structures all over the world that now have his name on them. But at his time, in his day, that, that didn't happen. It wasn't happening. Paul didn't build anything. There's no piece of the world that's left behind that Paul had something to do with building or putting together. You know what he did leave behind? Believers. Believers who were comforted and encouraged and exhorted. And what did they do? They carried on. That's the goal. The goal is for God's people to mature and continue. Mature and grow. Mature and be able to help others mature. That's the goal. Is that what's happening in your life? Listen to me. It will not and it cannot if you don't engage. If you don't genuinely engage and genuinely take part Right? It's just not going to happen. Oftentimes, folks, if we're honest, our occasional engagement with God, it's not transformative. Right? For some of you, your favorite TV show is far more transforming in your life and relationship than God's Word is. Why? It just gets more time. Your sources of entertainment, they, they just get more time. Folks, that shouldn't be for God's people. There should be a passion in us to know and be encouraged through the word and encourage one another and help each other to grow so that we will endure just like we're charged with in Hebrews, if you remember our walk through Hebrews. We must endure and we will as we're encouraged through the word and with each other. So now he transitions to a final account. Paul now is in Troas, and it's the night before he's planning to leave, according to Luke. It's the first day of the week. Uh, That's significant because think about this. When are they meeting as a church? The first day of the week. They're meeting on Sunday now. That's a transition from the Sabbath, which you know is... Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that's different. So this is a shift. These believers are now meeting on the first day of the week, and they break bread, and then Paul's going to talk to them. Now, Paul's intending to leave the next day, but he was prolonged in his speech until midnight. And I will confess to you, every single good preacher, pastor, teacher from time to time goes long. Amen? <laughs> that wasn't as good a response as I was hoping for. 
I will say to you, though, I've never gone as long as Paul. Now, I, I will also admit I've been tempted, but I didn't think that you all would stay. And some of you, I think, would be like Eutychus. You'd go to sleep if we stayed till midnight, right? If you didn't get up and leave, you would probably go to sleep. Well, that's what this young man does. He goes to sleep. The only problem is they're three stories up. So he's sitting in the window. He falls asleep and then falls out of the window. I mean, in some respects, the, the whole scenario initially is, it, it kind of sounds comical, right? Preacher goes long, somebody falls asleep and falls out of a window. It kind of sounds funny. Here's what's not funny. This boy dies. He falls out of the window and he dies. Now, the way Luke frames this, it, we're not sure if he's dead. Right? Look, look at how Luke says this. He says at the end of verse 9, he says, he fell out of the third story and was taken up dead. He's taken up dead. They, they pick him up and he is, he's gone. He, he, he's dead. Now, what's difficult for us and some commentators, they observe, you, you do know in chapter 14, they thought Paul was dead too, right? They take him out of the city. They stone him. They think he's dead. But, but note Luke's accounting of that. Luke says, they thought he was dead. Here in chapter 20, Luke, the doctor, says, I know this guy, he was dead. Right? They, they pick him up and he's dead. Now, the other confusing thing is the way Paul responds. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. It says, but Paul went down and he bent over him and taking his arms up, he said, don't be alarmed for there's light still in him. So it sounds as if, Paul gets down there and says, oh, no, it just knocked the wind out of him, right? He, he, he's not dead. He's alive. That's not what happened, right? This is almost a prophetic statement by Paul. Paul is saying he's going to be alive, right? He, he's going to be raised from the dead. The significance of this is incredible, and yet... Luke literally gives it five verses, right? Here's this kid, falls out, he's dead. Paul picks him up and says, no, there's still life in him, right? But what this demonstrates again is similar back in chapter 19, remember? With Paul's hanky or a piece of cloth, somebody take that and they'd be healed. Or there'd be a demon cast out. This is the power of God richly on display through the life and ministry of Paul. That's what Luke's rehearsing. This power of God is visible to everybody that looks on. And it's such that Paul can literally pick up a dead boy and say, oh, it's going to be okay. There's still life in him. And raises him. Right? And look at, and Luke does this several times in this text. It's kind of a first century euphemism, if we could say it like that. He says at the end of verse 12, and the family, right, they took this youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. He says that several times. Back in uh, chapter 19 and verse 21, he says it a couple of times throughout this text. What it means is they were really comforted, right? Not a little comforted. It's kind of a first century euphemism for, man, they were comforted, right? And in part, they were comforted, why? Certainly because they had their son back. 
But folks, in part, they were comforted by what? The work and power of God. Is that what comforts you? The power of God. The working of God. The magnificence of God. His care for you. His presence with you. No matter what comes. Is that what brings you comfort? It should. It can. By God's grace. He goes on. He transitions. Luke does to this final section. Verses 13 to 16. He tells about the ship. They're headed to the ship. And then they're intending to get aboard and go to land. But instead they go to Miletus. And this will be significant. Because in verse 17. The chapter or the section we'll get to next week. Paul actually calls the elders of Ephesus. To Miletus. And he meets with them there. And speaks with them. So this is significant for them. Again, the travel plans, the legacy of Paul in a sense, his encouragement, his exhortation, his urging, his instruction to regular believers so that they will endure. That is the goal. That is Paul's longing and his passion for God's people. And we see it again. Here we see it. Throughout, we'll see it through the rest of the book. Are you committed and continuing like that for God? Are you being encouraged, exhorted through the word, and encouraged to keep on? Encouraged to continue? Encouraged to grow? Encouraged to take that next step? Folks, that's the goal. That's why we engage the word the way that we do. So that Monday through Saturday, you can engage the word in the same way and be encouraged, exhorted through the word. And continue your growth in godliness by God's grace. Hopefully, throughout, you can see our God is more powerful than any opposition that we may face or any opposition to the gospel. And you and I can be comforted because of him. Because of what he has done. A famous singer in the 60s, Meryl Womack, was uh, on a plane ride. And the plane actually, in the process of taking off, it struck a tree in the winter of 1961. The plane, when it struck the tree, it caught fire. And Womack himself actually was thrown from the plane, engulfed in flames. Some people found him nearby and And they drove him to a hospital. And on the way to the hospital, to their amazement from the back seat, from a body that was racked with pain, came these words. I found the dear Savior and I'm made whole. I'm pardoned and have been released. His spirit abiding and blessing my soul. Praise God in my heart there is peace. Wonderful peace, wonderful peace. When I think he brought me from darkness to light, there's a wonderful, wonderful peace. Folks, our comfort cannot come from our circumstances, either present or past or our hope for the future. Our comfort can't come from circumstances. Our hope can't come from better circumstances. Our comfort must always spring From the person and work of Jesus and its connection to our lives. Folks, think this through for a minute. 
No matter what you face, you're right with the creator of the universe if you know Jesus. What's more significant than that? Folks, truly, work that out in your mind. What is bigger than that? What relationship issue is so big that it trumps that? There isn't one. What physical trial is so big that it trumps that? There isn't one. The reality is our afflictions in this life are but for a moment. And if you don't believe me, some of you younger ones in this room, ask some of the older ones. Life feels like a moment. It does. I think that more all the time. And in the midst of that moment, God can and will sustain you if you'll look to Him. Are you finding your comfort today in Him? Are you finding your hope in Him? Are you finding your peace in Him? Folks, you can't sing that after you go through what that individual endured unless that's in you. It's ingrained in you. It's the foundation of who you are. And folks, in truth, for some of us, our struggle when we come up against hard stuff is that's not who we are deep down. But we can be. With God's help, by His grace, we can be. We can rest in who He is, in all that He's done. You can't today if you do not know Him. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, you can't do this, you won't do it. It's just not possible. If you're a believer today, is this what characterizes your life? Is this what characterizes your living and thinking and responses and actions? Are you finding comfort in our God? He is capable. He is present. He is powerful. And he's far better than any idol, even our modern day idols. He's better than any idol will ever be and satisfies fully. Have you found that? Is that that what you've experienced? By God's grace, it can be. By God's grace, it can be.